So the first reading is taken from the second book of Samuel, chapter 16, verses 5 to 14. As King David approached Baharim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son, Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, what does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more then this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to do so. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore me to his uh, covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David and his men continued along the road, while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted, and there he refreshed himself. The second reading is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Hugo. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you so much for your powerful word, and we ask that you would unleash its transforming power in our lives. Give us understanding, give us receptive hearts, and lead us on and help me as I preach. Please come and do what only you can do in the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was uh, watching an interview recently with uh, Donald Trump. I don't particularly recommend it. But um, at one point in the interview, uh, the interviewer said to Trump, um, you're not known for being a humble man, are you? Uh, to which Trump immediately shot back, um, I am more humble than you could possibly understand. It's just utterly priceless, isn't it? And there is a kind of fascinating body of scientific research now. It's called the Dunning-Kruger experiment, for anyone who wants to look it up. And it demonstrates kind of how human beings have this tendency to overestimate our skills and abilities. So at a conference, the speaker said, raise your hand if you think you are an above-average driver. And of course, 90% of the room raised their hand. 
there was another study I was looking at of software engineers, and they said they asked them to rate their performance. And 42% of the software engineers um, actually rated themselves in the top at 5% of performers in the business. And what's interesting is that we might not say something quite as utterly ridiculous as that Trump comment, but the research is very clear that meekness does not come naturally to us, doesn't come naturally to me. We have naturally kind of warped self-perceptions. And I find that that's true not just um, in the workplace, it's also true in this whole realm of spiritual character. I tend to overestimate my spiritual character and my levels of humility and meekness. And it's why the scriptures are so important, isn't it? Because they have this power to kind of pierce our self-perceptions and to transform us from the inside out. And uh, we've been hearing from Rupert over the last two weeks about uh, the kind of life that God can bless. And today I want to speak to you about that third beatitude, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. What is meekness? Well, meekness is a completely accurate and humble view of yourself, which expresses itself in gentleness and consideration with others. Meekness is a completely accurate and humble view of yourself, which expresses itself in gentleness and consideration with others. Now, the Beatitudes are all connected. They are, um, as we were hearing, rungs in a ladder, Um, Each one suggests and points to the next one. They're not haphazard. And there is, first of all, that kind of foundation of all true spirituality, all genuine encounters with God, being poor in spirit. So important, so basic, uh, when you realise you have nothing to rely on in the sight of God except your own helplessness and sin and to throw yourself on God's mercy. And that spirit then leads to a condition of mourning, the second beatitude. As we become aware of sin in our lives, we mourn it and long to be rid of it, as we were hearing last week. And then that leads into this third beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, the first two beatitudes are really about our kind of heart, our posture, our spirit before God. Uh, But this beatitude is kind of beginning to look at our behaviour. Uh, what that spirit looks like, as it were, in relationship to others. And that's why the title uh, that I've given for today's message is Strength Under Control is Good for the Soul. Strength Under Control is Good for the Soul because um, the essence of meekness is not weakness. The essence of meekness is strength under control. And in 2 Samuel chapter 16, this kind of obscure passage from the Old Testament I think we see David exemplifying meekness in such a powerful way, demonstrating his greatness as a leader. And really, there's three things this passage is going to teach us about meekness. It's going to teach us that meekness is a question of um, perspective, that meekness is a question of power, how we use power, and that it's a question of promise. So perspective, power, promise. Firstly, a question of perspective, So the story we just heard, uh, the 2 Samuel one, it emerges in the middle of um, a full-blown revolt against David's kingship. Now, um, earlier in 2 Samuel, um, it explains the reason for that. And basically, David um, decides that he wants to have a woman called Bathsheba 
Um, so he forces Bathsheba to come to um, his palace and he sleeps with her. And if that wasn't bad enough, when he finds out that she's pregnant, he then deliberately arranges for um, her husband, uh, a chap called Uriah, to be killed on the battlefield and then tries to try and make it look like an accident. So it's a nasty, nasty episode. And eventually a prophet called Nathan confronts David and he is brought to a kind of miraculous repentance. Uh, But despite that, Nathan uh, tells David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, verse 11, he says, out of your own household, uh, this is God speaking now, I am going to bring calamity on you. So there's still the consequences of the seriousness of David's sin. And true to that word, David's third son, Absalom, leads a revolt against David's kingship. And so David is forced to flee Jerusalem uh, with his tail between his legs. He's still uh, God's anointed king, but his influence has been stripped back massively to a band of faithful soldiers. And that is where our reading this morning picks up. The revolt is in full swing. Uh, David has had to run away. And then he is met by this man called Shimei, a man absolutely overflowing with hate. So verses five to six, it says, a man from the same clan as Saul's family, that's the previous regime, the previous king, his name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. Now, Shimei has probably been sitting on his hatred for David for a long time. Uh, because David was in power, Shimei wouldn't have been able to express his hatred. But now that David's on retreat, his power is gone and he's convinced Absalom is on the up. He now is sure that David is done for and he unleashes the full fury of his hatred. And he says in verses seven to eight, Uh, As he cursed, he's shouting obscenities. And then he says, get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son, Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Ouch. There is a phrase, kicking a man while he's down. And that is exactly what Shimmy's doing here. He wants to rub salt Um, in David's wounds and to give vent to all of his repressed hatred and rage. And while there is some merit to Shimei's accusations, many of them are completely and utterly unfair. Um, He accuses David of bloodshed um, in the house of Saul, uh, the previous king. But the reality is, and you can go back and read this in 1 Samuel, the reality is that David was actually completely loyal and kind to Saul, even when Saul was trying to kill him. Uh, but he's just got this kind of irrational hatred for David. Uh, but right now, the thing to notice is we've got God's anointed king, David. This is crucial to understanding David. He's not just an individual. God has chosen him to be God's anointed king. And then we've got Shimei, full of hate and cursing, convinced that David's on his way out, cursing him, throwing dirt at him and just generally abusing him. And I think David lets us in on a remarkable perspective on meekness. Just look at his response. So um, Abishai, son of Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? It's a great insult, isn't it? I need to remember that one. Dead dog. Let me go over 
and cut off his head. But the king said, what does this have to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why did you do this? And so notice the perspective that David lets us in on here that empowers his meekness. He acknowledges the possibility that Shimei's curses could be part of God's plan and providence. Almost as if he says, I might not be guilty of all of the things he's saying. I might not be guilty of bloodshed in the house of Saul, but I am a murderer and I know I have sinned enough to deserve being cursed and, and banished from God's presence forever. So leave him alone. It is a remarkable meekness and restraint that David shows here. A few points of application for us at this point. How do you respond when you receive criticism and feedback? Or perhaps even more challenging, how do you respond when you receive what feels like unfair criticism and feedback? How do you respond when hurtful verbal stones are thrown at you? It might be an unreasonable or a bullying boss. It might be an argument with a family member. It might be disloyal or self-interested colleagues. It might just be plain injustice and mistreatment. But how do you respond to that? It's such a practical question, isn't it? You know, how do we respond to unfair criticism and feedback? David's first step is to discern the Lord's hand in what is happening, that God is sovereign, and then to have the humility to say, the specific criticism might feel unfair and indeed might actually be unfair, but to say, I've done plenty in the past to deserve criticism and judgment, and therefore I'm going to make a decision to, res to respond with grace and humility and to try to discern what's actually true in the criticism. I think that's the essence of meekness. Some of you might know about the story of the Apostle Paul and his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And uh, what's really interesting, there's a bit of a debate about what that thorn is, but many scholars think that the thorn could be a, a person who is making David's life a complete and utter misery, a shimmy type figure who is um, abusing him. And Paul says this about that thorn in his side in verses seven to eight. He says, it was given in order to keep me from becoming conceited that I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Maybe you can relate to that. Pleading with the Lord to take it away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And while unfair criticism and feedback hurts, God can use it to strip us of confidence in ourselves in order that we can have a real confidence in him and his grace, in order that we can go deeper with him and experience an intimacy with him that we could not have any other way. And so when Shimi comes shouting curses and obscenities and throwing stones, David has the perspective to say, I don't see how, but I know God in his sovereignty is allowing this. And so I'm going to trust him and I'm going to wait for him. Now, many years ago, I had a bullying boss and who was making my life utterly miserable at the time. And it was so painful and so stressful. And I felt trapped. I felt unhappy. 
and the pain felt totally and utterly pointless. Now, in hindsight, I could see it was probably one of the most productive times of my life, and I grew more than I can express. Why was that? Well, for me, it was about realizing that God doesn't approve of the bullying, but he can use it and he can work with it to soften me and help me to connect with people who face the same thing. But here's what I want you to see. I had no idea what God was up to at the time. It was just hard and painful and that was it. But now I can see God was at work in my life in all kinds of ways and I still draw on that experience to help other people when they face that as well. But I couldn't see it at the time and the teaching is this. Wait for God to give you perspective and in the meantime be faithful to him and keep on doing what he's calling you to do. David then gives us another perspective here, which is so helpful in verse 11. He says, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjaminite? Leave him alone, let him curse for the Lord has told him to. Here's what he's saying. He's basically saying, guys, I've got much bigger fish to fry than this randomer cursing me and throwing stones at me. And it is such a wise response to being attacked. One of the temptations when you're in a season of uh, battle or criticism or setback is to respond poorly and then the whole situation gets a million times worse. When we're stressed, um, sleep deprived, um, in a difficult season, it's so easy to overreact, isn't it, I find, to fire off a thoughtless email, to, to make a, th a thoughtless phone call, to send a silly text. And before you know it, what was a small issue has suddenly morphed into a massive problem that could have totally been avoided if we'd exercised restraint. And David comes and says, essentially, I've got bigger fish to fry, and that is where I'm going to make sure I focus my emotional energy. And so I guess my question for, for you and I is this, where is the real battle for you? It might be that you say, well, the problem is uh, my boss or my finances or a difficult family member, but actually the real problem could be something else. It, maybe it's that you know, a family member is sick or you're sleep deprived or you haven't seen your friends for months. But what is the real battle and how can you stay focused on dealing with that? It might be that you say, well, my problem is a really challenging relationship or maybe an addiction. But actually, the real problem is the trauma that drives those destructive tendencies. Meekness is a question of perspective. We find the real battle. We find the real problem. And we focus on dealing with that rather than just the thing that happens to shout the loudest in the moment. You know, sometimes when, when you first become a Christian, you can think, well, my outward circumstances have just got worse. And you think, why is that? And the Lord actually says, well, you have to remember you have a real spiritual enemy. You have to remember the devil is real and that we don't just fight against flesh and blood. And that you do need to prioritize your spiritual well-being, reading the Bible, prayer, keeping yourself in a place of spiritual strength and health. But meekness is a question of perspective. And David shows us that powerfully, seeing God's sovereignty and picking the right battles and not getting distracted. 
It, but meekness is also a question of power and how we use power. So in verse 9, he says, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. I love the realism of the Old Testament, uh, but to which David responds by saying, verse 11, Leave him alone. Almost exactly like, actually, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They pull out swords. It's almost exactly the same. And Jesus says, no, put your swords away because I'm called to suffer and to do this. But we might not live in a world where we can literally cut off someone's head for insulting us. But verbally, we can cut people down. And Jesus goes on to warn us about that in Matthew chapter 5. So he says, you know, you've heard it was said of old, you shall not murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. David was God's um, anointed king with the equivalent of SHS soldiers and flanking him on his right and left. But he exercises incredible self-control here, doesn't he? I know this is a church with amazing, gifted leaders and achievers, people making a huge difference all across London. But it's important to remember, I think, that God is watching how we interact with those below us, those we have authority over, and that we're accountable to him for how we respond to and steward that responsibility. Would those who work for you, if that is you, if that is your position, would they say, she or he has strength under control? Or would they say, they can sometimes cut me down with their words? There was no one as powerful as Jesus Christ, was there? He raised the dead. He, he dispatched demons with a word. He healed everyone who came to him. He spoke to thousands. Jesus had absolute strength, but it was strength under control, so much so that when uh, they drove nails through his hands and his feet and uh, hung him on a cross to slowly suffocate to death for our sin and in our place, such was his awesome strength of character and his meekness that Jesus could say in all sincerity, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is a question of power. And it's a question of how you use the power and the influence God has given you. And I think David really challenges me and you and I on that point. That leads into my third point that meekness is a question of promise. There's such a power-packed verse in verse 12. I'll just read it to you it's, uh, because I think it's so good. After restraining his soldiers from killing Shimei, David says, It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse Today, it is an utterly awesome and rich comment from David here. David knows that God is the kind of God who can exchange curses for blessing, despite everything that he's done to richly deserve what he is facing. Where on earth did he get a hunch like that from? Only someone who has known the Lord intimately at some point could have a hunch that God could be that kind of God 
And this is the unexpected part of meekness. We'd think someone who has committed murder and adultery, like David, might be utterly imprisoned in shame, unable to hope for redemption and forgiveness ever again. And in pastoral ministry, I I meet people, Christians, many of whom have believed in Jesus for years, who are still locked in shame uh, about sins from their past. But David's meekness expresses itself not in self-hatred, which is essentially still me-focused, but in a hope that despite all of his sin, God can exchange curses for blessing, that God can exchange sin for eternal life, that God can exchange rightly deserved judgment for blood-bought freedom and grace. And so there's incredible hope in this for those of us imprisoned in shame and regret about past sin and past mistakes, for those who know that they haven't been meek when they should have been. We can know, actually, we don't just have to hope like David. We can know God's blessing for sure because as it says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by what? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The reason God's blessing can come down on us is because God's curse came down on Jesus Christ. And true meekness says, actually, yes, I would deserve to be cursed. I would deserve to be cut off. I would deserve judgment and condemnation. But, but because of Jesus Christ, I choose to look away from myself, away from my past, away from how I happen to feel in the moment. I choose to look away from myself to the blood of Jesus. And it's there that I find freedom. It's there that I find the ultimate power to be meek when I'm facing criticism and personal attack and everything is crying out in me, defend yourself. Because it's there I've got an unconditional love and a standing with God which is utterly and totally secure. Let's pray as I finish. As Father, we do just take a moment now to just uh, bow before your majesty and the majesty of your son, Jesus. And we ask that you would be pleased to give us more of his meekness. We pray that you would give us the perspective and the power and that promise that comes from meekness, that when Jesus returns, that we would find ourselves with him inheriting the earth as indeed you promise. So we ask you to come and do that work within us. In Jesus' name. Amen.